Let us pray. God, you are love. You're not merely loving. You are love. You love us now. You seek to only bring goodness to us, complete goodness. And we know that as we turn to your word, you have goodness in store. As you work through your Holy Spirit, you will bring about that goodness in our life as we humble ourselves before you. We pray that um, you would speak now, that, um, that your Holy Spirit would do what study and sermon prep cannot do, and that is be impacting and transformational in our lives and to draw us closer and closer to your love. That is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Please turn to Romans chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, um, I would love to give you a Bible. See me after the worship service. Um, You might be able to find a Bible in front of you, one of the seats in front of you if you don't have one, and you can uh, turn it to page 1123 if you're using one of our Bibles Romans chapter 12. I'm going to start with verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophecy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. And if it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. So the very first word that uh, we read in that scripture is the word therefore, and it can be kind of tricky starting a, a, a passage of scripture with the word therefore, and the sermon on that, because... The word therefore kind of begs the question, what comes before it, right? And Romans chapter 12 is, it's it's a hinge chapter. It starts something new based on what has come before it. And if you've been coming to church for a while, um, or if you've done a lot of personal Bible study, Romans there's a lot to it, important stuff about being a Christian in the book of Romans. And so this is chapter 12. It means 11 chapters have come before it with a lot of really important stuff. And then, and then we have this word, therefore, after all this important stuff. 
So uh, just to give the 30-second elevator speech about what comes before this, in, in Romans, Paul writes about sin and how we are all sinners and how God did not count our sins against us and that those who are in Christ, there is no condemnation for our sins. And how God has adopted us into his family. You did not choose to become a part of God's family. He adopted us into his family. And it's great to be in God's family, right? I mean, you would, you would think that's a great thing. It, there's, there's protection in God's family. There's, there's freedom, in God, freedom in God's family. Being a, a part of God's family, it's a, it's a great thing. So all of that has come before this. And then comes Romans chapter 12. So verse 2, look at verse 2. It mentions patterns of the world that should be avoided. In light of all this great stuff that Paul's talked about, then he says, now there's some patterns in your world that need to be avoided. And I want to think about maybe one of the patterns of the Roman Empire that um, it was deeply influential to life in the Roman Empire, and that meant to these Christians that Paul is writing to in Rome. And so one of the, the features of life in the Roman Empire was this pretty developed class system. And if you were in the upper classes, there definitely were privileges that you received that members of the lower class could not participate in at all. So you had the, the senator class at the very top of the of the Roman Empire, they had um, some pretty impressive privileges that went with being in the, uh, the the senator class, and then you had the equestrian class. You owned a owned a horse, and to be in the equestrian class, it's not the only thing that you could do in the equestrian class on a horse, but it was right below that, and it it had some some great benefits to be in the equestrian. Class and you know, below those two classes, there were the, the the citizens, Roman citizens, and then the non-citizens. The, the Roman citizens enjoyed some basic privileges, and if you weren't a Roman citizen, you were either a non-citizen or maybe a slave, and you basically had no rights or privileges. Um, and that was that just kind of defined living in the Roman Empire, and then these. Christians would come together, people who believed in Christ. And and it didn't matter what class that you were a part of. You were together in the church. One of the reasons the church, the early church, was completely countercultural and therefore able to attract so many people at such a rapid rate is how it was able to tear down these classes when Christians would get together. It didn't matter if you were rich or poor, high class or low class, free person or slave. It didn't matter. All were brothers and sisters in the church, and they were to show no favoritism. A little bit later, verse 10 of Romans chapter 12, Paul writes this. He says, honor one 
uh, outdo one another in showing honor. So, so yes, you, you senator class Christian, I want you to outdo that, that slave in showing honor to him. Show more honor to him than he is showing you because of your class system. It just tore down these walls. And when the church crossed over those class boundaries, it was completely revolutionary. And I want to think about the revolutionary nature of Christianity. Because I'm not sure that that would be the, one of the first words that um, a person would use to describe the church, right? Revolutionary. You might use other words to describe it. Non-Christians might use other words to describe it. But revolutionary today probably is not one of the first words on their list to describe Christianity. Now, our faith is not something to make us feel good. Our faith is not something to give us this nice moral code, an important moral code to live within. It's not what our, those are important things about our faith, but it's not what our faith is about. Our faith is about being revolutionary in, in how we live because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is what Romans, Paul develops, the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout those 11 chapters before this. Is there a revolutionary way for us to hear Romans chapter 12 today in our culture? I think there is. Of course there is. So let's talk about that. Um, for 40 years ago, Burger King, Anyone like Burger King in here? For 40 years, Burger King had a slogan, a particular slogan. Anyone know the Burger King slogan? So, yeah, are you right? Have it your way. Wow. I mean, when it has that slogan for 40 years, it really gets ingrained in your mind. Now, it actually changed recently, uh, that slogan. Um, But I... (laughs) I cannot think of a more American slogan than have it your way, right? At least America right now. I can't think of a just a, a slogan that kind of captures um, what, how many people seem to approach life. Have it your way. Um, I want to have things my way. I want to do things my way. And it's, it's a way of thinking that myself is the very center of myself. And I know I just put, I put that in a pretty interesting way. Myself is the center of myself. Well, of course it is, right? Um, the question is, is that slogan compatible with Christianity? Look at verse 1. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Now, worship has to do with this vertical relationship with God, right? We want to, we want to live rightly with, with God. It means getting that vertical relationship in the right direction. That's what worship is about. When we have faith that God is king and not that burger is king, or money is king, or myself is king. When we believe that God is king, that 
that changes something. It changes how I view my life. Paul is saying worship is more than just what we do with our lips and our voices. It's our way of life, relating this vertical relationship with God. Lay down your life to God. Give it up. Sacrifice it, is what Paul is saying. Let's start with this, this point, therefore. Faith in Christ changes what we believe about ourselves. It changes what we believe about And I'll talk about two um, revolutionary ways that this is true. One, our faith in Christ points out that we receive our life. We do not own our life. Paul says in verse 3, he says, Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. Um, And I don't think that Paul, when he says, don't think of yourself more highly than you, I don't think he's saying, don't think poorly of yourself, because I don't know if you remember, the was it last week, the, the main? No, two weeks ago, the main scripture verse was, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, you are God's handiwork. You are God's masterpiece is a, is a good synonym for that. So Paul's not saying, uh, you know, come on, you're not all that and more. God created you as his masterpiece, his handiwork. Paul means not, Paul means to, trying to put this in the least confusing way as possible, Paul means, do not see your life as independent from God. Why? Because God's given you faith. That's what the verse says. God has, according to the faith that God has distributed to each of you, this one faith in Jesus Christ, and God has given it to you. You did not come up with that faith on your own. God gave it to you. You are dependent upon God. And then, you know, from what we read later on in this scripture text, God has given you these gifts. You are dependent upon God with your life. In fact, everything that you have is there because God has given it to you. The breath that you just breathed, that was from God to you. This day that God has given you to enjoy is from God. We are completely dependent upon God. You have no rights to anything because God is giving you everything. You do not own your life. God has given it to you. We receive our life. We do not own See the difference? Now, I would confess this. That is fairly easy to believe in theory. Right? If If you're coming to church, I mean, maybe this is your first time. Maybe you don't know anything about Christianity and it's kind of news to you. Um... But for, for most of us who've been coming a while, in theory, I mean, it's pretty easy to say, yeah, God owns my life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I want to press a little further into what also Paul says. Paul says in verse 4, he kind of continues with this thought of how we should see one another, see our lives differently. It says, just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function. So in Christ, though many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Wait, what? 
I can, in theory, say, yeah, I belong to God. I get it. But belong to one another? No, hold on a moment. If we really believe verse 5, I want to point out this second revolutionary shift that our faith in Christ brings about how we see ourselves, and it's this. We are members of the church, not users of the church. We're members of the church. We belong to one another. We're not users of the church. And the church is full of closet users. Um, any given Sunday of the, you know, the year, I, I'm, a, I'm the pastor, but I'm a closet user. You know, it's hard to avoid being a, a church user. Um, a church user is, you know, someone who attends as long as the worship service is meeting their needs, you know, that it's the right length, service length, with the right songs or the right preaching style, with the right people around us or you. That's a church user. You ask someone, why do you go to church? And here could be some responses. I love getting recharged each week. Well, that's a good thing. I say amen to that. I like, I like getting recharged each week. Uh, nothing wrong with that. Or I go because I love the preaching. Can I hear a big amen to that? Amen. Nothing wrong with loving the preaching. Or the music is uplifting. That's great. Or my kids really need it. There's nothing wrong with those things. But listen, how many people say, okay, why do you go to church? I go because other people need me. I go because we belong to one another. That's a very countercultural idea. Paul is pointing that very truth out in Romans 12. So we're in this message series about your story and how God's story changes your story. So let's talk about your story. Your story. Um, one huge way that God changes your story is that he has made your story our story. He's made it about our story together. You don't have an individual story that's disconnected from the our story. It's both. God has made you very unique. He has given you gifts Verse 6 says that we have these different gifts according to the grace that God has given each of us. So God makes us unique. That's, that's the your story part. But he does that so that we can have our story, so that he can connect us together. So we each have different functions within the body of Christ. And when we carry out these different functions, we get very strong. So I want to connect those three statements that I just made. God makes us very unique so that we can be very connected and therefore be very strong. I did not just toss in those words very, just to look good. Very unique, that's you. Very connected, that's us, so that we can be very strong together. And this is how I think the church can be revolutionary today, quite honestly. We live in an individualistic society. Have it your way. And I think we can break through that. We can tear that down. 
and um, it can be revolutionary for people around us. When we show loving strength, when the needs of the members are met, when our unity helps hold life together, because life can get pretty tough sometimes, right? When our unity holds life together, then we can be pretty revolutionary as a church to the neighborhoods around us. That's a wonderful witness for people today. So let's talk about giftedness. We talked about it last week. Let's talk about it a little bit more this week about how we can use our giftedness to, to build this strength as a church. Um, how do our spiritual gifts make us strong? Paul says, share your gifts. I want to look at gifts. I don't want to, I mean, it, it could be a huge mistake saying, hey, I want to categorize these gifts. Um, so it's not what I'm doing, but I, I just want to describe what, um, what, how we see gifts, what we see gifts doing to a, a church, a body of believers. Um, I think spiritual gifts guide and provide. So those are the two categories, but don't be too rigid with these categories. Just describing how gifts can function. Guide and provide. Um, it's not an exhaustive list of what gifts do, but I think it's, it's a good, I think it gets to kind of the heart of the gifts. Um, so think, think for a moment about what God did with the ancient Israelites when he was leaving, leading them out of slavery in Egypt and taking them to the promised land. What did he do? Well, he, he guided them, right? He appeared uh, to the people as fire during the daytime so they could follow him. No, uh, fire at nighttime so they could follow him. They'd light up the sky and they'd follow behind. Or a cloud during the day so they could follow him. So he guided the people. He guided their, their life. He gave them the Ten Commandments. Here's, here's my guidance for how you should live together. So he gave some, some literal, directional uh, guidance, follow me. And also the relational guidance, live like this, Ten Commandments. He provided uh, for the people. He gave them bread and water, even though there was no bread and water around in the wilderness. He got it and provided. Now, Jesus, think about Jesus. Jesus is our good shepherd. What do shepherds do? Shepherds, they guide the sheep, right? They guide sheep to good places, and they provide for their sheep along the way. They feed the sheep. They protect the sheep. They rescue the sheep. They provide things. Now, Jesus' ministry, he was clear about this. He said, I'm just doing God's ministry. What was God doing? He was guiding and providing. What's Jesus doing? He's guiding and providing. In the church ministry, what is our ministry? Well, it's just Jesus' ministry. What are we doing? We're guiding and we're providing for one another, aren't we? So we're going to read through these gifts, and I want us to see how they guide and how they provide for one another. Uh, Look at verse 6. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly, if prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith. And and last week we talked about the gift of prophecy. We said that it's more about a, a word from God in the present moment rather than this predictive word for the future. It can be predictive of the future, but much more often I think the role of prophecy is this present word from God for the moment.
Um, seems like a guiding gift, right? This word from God for the present moment. Paul says to use the gift of prophecy in proportion to faith. And I used to think, well, that sounds kind of strange, right? Like, what is he saying? Is he saying, if I don't have that much faith, then don't use that gift very widely. If I have a ton of faith, then, well, I should really be prophesying. Well, I mean, it, it possibly could, could mean that, but I don't think that's what Paul was meaning. I, uh, Paul uses the word um, analogia. Use to describe the connection between the gift of prophecy and your faith. Use your gift analogously. Did I say that word correctly? With your faith. Like your faith presents a truth to you, a reality to you. Use your faith that is consistent with that truth. Um. And of course, we get that our word analogy from that, that Greek word that Paul uses. Um, so I think this is referring not to the quantity of the gift that we should share, but the quality of the gift that we should share. If we are sharing this gift of prophecy because this truth of the gospel that God has given us, then make that gift as you give it really about what God says and not you kind of mix in your own stuff. and Because you don't need to do that. The gospel, the gospel is, pl- is plenty. The good news of Christ is plenty. The, the, the word of God is plenty. You don't have to add to it as, as a prophet. So I thought about one word to encourage you prophets, the prophets out there, those of you who that just kind of sense a word from God for the present moment. Um, and here's the word I came up with, pray. Prophets, pray. Pray, prophets. Pray that God would clearly reveal his word to you. And that you, if the gift of prophecy is yours to share, that you'd be able to distinguish God's word from your own desires or thoughts. Because we really want to hear from God through you. So prophets, pray. Next in verse 7, Paul writes, If service in his serving, use, use if service is your gift, then serve. Or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, He who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. And we'll talk about these. If service is your gift, then serve. And he uses the word um, diaconian. It's where we get our word deacon. Some of our members have been ordained as deacons within the church. Acts chapter 6 talks about when deacons were first established in the church, and it was to meet a very specific need. There were there were, uh, there were Christians, there were widowed Christians that were going hungry. They were not being fed, and it was not right. And so deacons fought for justice. They were the justice champions in that early church, and that's what we want our deacons to do here is to champion justice, what is right, that we what, provide for one another, maybe one of those providing gifts, provide for one another, that what is right is happening and that Hungry people are fed, and, and people that are going through difficult times, that we rally around them and help what is right to happen for them. So deacons, be diligent in that. Um, teach. Teachers, teach. Yeah, maybe a distinction between prophecy and teaching is uh, 
teaching is explaining the, the word that God has for us. It's maybe a little more systematic than that kind of the word of God for the present moment that a prophet would provide, but helping us systematically know what um, God's word says. So teachers, please teach. Maybe a guiding gift. Paul mentions the gift of encouragement or exhortation. And encouraging can come from uplifting words, words to cheer us on. It can come um, through a word of warning at times to help us stay on the right track. The word for encouragement um, or exhortation here is the same word that is used for the Holy Spirit as the one who comes alongside us and and. And encourages us, keeps us going. But what also does the Holy Spirit do? Can convict us, help us feel convicted, like if we start going off on on the wrong path. So if you have the gift of encouragement, I want you to think about how you're able to come alongside people and and guide them. Paul says, if giving, then give with generosity. And that word for generosity could also be uh, understood as uh, give with simplicity. What, is it, what would it mean to give with simplicity? I think it means to give with the right motives, right? Like no ulterior motives, not like I'm going to give you this so that I can get something in return, a favor in return, or put you in my indebtedness, or to get you to like me more, or something like that. Just give simply. And if you think about it, when you are ex- expecting nothing in return, that is generous giving, Right? It's giving her the right motives. I remember um, most of you guys know that my family used to live in Illinois um, right before moving down here a few years ago, pastoring there for six years, right after we moved to Illinois, um, nine months or so later. A tragedy in the family. My uh, nephew, young nephew, was killed in a car accident, and um, um, we had to leave. We had to drive back to Texas. And I remember our church up there just, we're on our way out, and they'd stuff 500 bucks in my hand and say, here, take this. Take it for gas, take it for hotels, whatever. Just be blessed. That's kind of that, that giving generously with, with no, no motives other than just to, to bless. And I thought about that story. Um. And how that that gift just came just at the right time. And I thought about that, and I thought, here's really what gifts do. These spiritual gifts. Using your spiritual gift puts you at the right place at the right time. Some people ask, can your gift change over time? Can God give you a new gift all of a sudden? You know, we don't want to say too much. We don't want to go necessarily beyond what Scripture says about that, and Scripture doesn't really speak too clearly about that that question. But I, I do think that gifts, when we share gifts, we're at the right place at the right time, and God is going to give you a gift so that you will be at the right place at the right time and meet some need, a, a provision, or, or some guidance. That's what I want us to remember as we share our gifts. You're going to be at the right place at the right time when you're using them. Next in verse 8, Paul says to those with a gift of leadership to lead with diligence. Lead with diligence. That's kind of, I mean, 
if, if we were writing this, we might have put a different word. Um, let's go to the Scripture. Can we go, go to the Scripture verse back to... Uh, we don't have to put the Scripture back, verse back up there. Look at your verse 8 in your Bibles. Let's try that. Um, lead diligently. If you were writing verse 8, you might have put a different word there. Lead with um, uh, integrity. How about that? I mean, that, that would be nice today, you know. People leading with integrity. You might be aware of just some of the train wrecks that are going on in certain churches uh, nationally because someone not leading with integrity. It's just bad. Or lead with innovation, right? Think of new things, new ways to innovate. But Paul says lead with diligence. What is he saying? I think he's saying this. Remember what's at stake. Leaders, remember what's at stake. Jesus says, I'm going to build up my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome the church. Remember, there are people living in great darkness around us. Jesus says, my church will be victorious over the darkness. Life and death are at stake. Eternal life, eternal death are at stake. Jesus says, I'm building my church to defeat the darkness and bring my life. So leaders in our church, be diligent. Remember what's at stake. I know you could be spending lots of hours doing other kind of things with your, with your giftedness, leaders. Just be diligent in your leadership here, remembering what is at stake. Last gift that Paul mentions is mercy. Show pity, compassion to others. But look at what Paul writes at the end of verse 8. He says, He who shows mercy, do so with cheerfulness. Isn't that interesting? And that word for cheerful or cheerfully is um, helarotes. It's where we get our word hilarious from. That's an odd combination, isn't it? Be merciful. Those who are going through difficulty, be merciful with not just cheerfulness, but just the hilarity of it. And how, how does that work together? Well, when you read through the Bible, you get a glimpse of, of comedy. You get a great glimpse of comedy when you read through the Bible. You get the story of God promising a couple, a, a husband and wife, their very first child together. Only when that child is born, the mom is 90 and the dad is 100. God's stepping in the, the least likely of situations and doing something crazy and hysterical. And hilarious. You get the story of, of God choosing a king for his people. He goes to a family. There's some big studs in this family, some brothers. They are, they are studly. And, and God says, I don't want you to go one, to one of those big brothers. I want you to go to the smallest, weakest of the brothers, and he's going to be the king of all of Israel, choosing the least likely person. You get, you get the story of this rebellious son in Scripture, just rebellious, and he squanders everything that his dad has given him. And he, he runs off, and he wastes it all, and he winds up feeding pigs to 
great by a living, except he really doesn't have a living. He doesn't have food for himself. He's so hungry, he wants to eat the food that he's feeding the pigs. And that son is found by his father, who winds up not feeding him pig food because of his disobedience and his rebelliousness, but rather he throws his great feast in honor of his son has been found. There's just hilarity in the Bible. You get the story of a man in a tomb crucified on a cross, not because of crimes that he committed, but because of the love that he showed, who then busts out of the tomb three days later, stomping over all of the evil and sin and the devil, laughing. You get the gospel of a God who steps in unlikely situations and hopeless situations and bringing about laughter. And somehow Paul is connecting these two thoughts when someone needs mercy, give them that mercy, but connect them to this gospel that makes you laugh. It is so good news. We need compassionate people who can show mercy and help build the bridge between the difficulty that we're facing and the hope and the joy and the laughter of the gospel. I hope your faith in the gospel will move you to see how you are connected to one another, that you belong, that we belong to one another. And we need the gifts that each of you have and for you to share them. We need you to share your gifts so that God God will be putting you at the right place, at the right time. And when we all do that, we will grow very strong together. Let's pray. Father, we 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 thank you. We humble ourselves before you. We want to affirm our life is not our own. It belongs to you, and we belong to one another. Father, will you make that so in how we live? Will your Holy Spirit lead us? Will you help us to take with great reverence and great commitment your call to share your grace that has manifested itself in our lives as a gift in a unique way? Help us to share that gift with this body. Lord, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.